Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. Before Abraham was, I am. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. In the movie Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrahams is pursuing a gold medal in the 1924 Olympics. He flounders greatly in his first race, the 200, and so he only has one chance left to win a medal, and that's in the 100 meters. As he contemplates this shortly before the race, he says, And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and I'll look down the corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Abraham sought the gold to justify his existence, to fulfill his purpose, to find fulfillment in life. We all turn to something, we all believe in something to find fulfillment, to find a purpose, to move us forward, to satisfy us. This morning, I trust that we'll all open ourselves up to the Spirit of God to be able to answer that question, in what do I trust? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray like King David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. See if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Open our eyes to what you want us to see this morning. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been presenting himself as the one in whom we should trust. 
the one who will fulfill and satisfy our lives. To Nicodemus, a religious leader, he said, you can be born again by believing in me. I will give you eternal life. To a Samaritan woman at a well, he offered living water that would satisfy her thirst forever. In the sixth chapter, he speaks to a crowd and says, I am the bread of life. I am the very substance what helps you to live. And we saw at the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7 that Jesus presented himself as the one who brings a living water that not only quenches our thirst, but flows through us to bring life to others, eternal life to others through us. And then he says, I am the light of the world. I am the one who sees life and can help you to see life, not only as it was meant to be, but what it is now. And how it can become what it was meant to be, how you can become what you are meant to be. And we saw last week that he said, I will bring you the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're all slaves to sin, but in Jesus Christ, we can have freedom from that bondage. And what we see in the response of the people is they reject Jesus. They turn away his offer of this life to trust in something else. And so, as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to unfold three steps. We're going to see what they trusted in, their response when Jesus exposes the barrenness of this object of trust, and then Jesus' presentation of himself. But we want to be applying this to our own lives. So, when we look at what they trusted in, we have to ask ourselves the question, what, what do we trust in? And when uh, Jesus exposes them, and we see their response to that, we need to ask ourselves, what is our response to Jesus when he exposes us? And then when Jesus presents himself for who he is, we ask the question, is Jesus worthy of our trust? So three things. And what do we trust how do we respond when Jesus exposes us and is Jesus worthy of our trust? So in what, in what do we trust? Jesus is the one in whom we should trust. He is the one that offers life and brings us life. But if we substitute something else for Jesus, the Bible calls that an idol. It has replaced God. It has replaced him. And we use that and seek that for life. Now, one author put it this way. Anything you look to more than Christ for a sense of acceptability, joy, significance, hope, and security is by definition your God. Something you serve with your life and your heart. So, Travis uncovered last week and did a very thorough, great presentation of how this group, this group of Jews, was trusting in Abraham. As they said, we are descendants of Abraham, as they decided. 
they defended themselves. And just to summarize what their meaning by this is, in Genesis chapter 12, God chose Abraham from among the nations and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you as a nation, I am going to bless the world. And that's why the Jewish people are called the chosen people. And this crowd was very dependent upon that. We are automatically God's people because we're born in the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's in whom they trusted. I faced something similar to this in the uh, previous church I pastored. It was a small church, and when I got there, 90% of the people were of Armenian descent. And it, it was a wonderful experience, loving people. Uh, they embraced everybody, and by the time I left, there were people in the church born in 22 different countries, so they're very open. Yet when they tried to reach other Armenians, the door was completely shut. They were seen as fanatics. And the reason for that is Armenia was the first Christian nation where the king declared it a Christian nation. And so when you would talk to them about Christ, a number of them anyway, they would say, well, I'm already a Christian. By birth, I'm an Armenian. I'm a Christian. And we do something very similar. We might say, well, I was born a Baptist. I was born a Presbyterian. I was born a Catholic. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Or we might say, hey, not only was I born that, but I went to church. And I was confirmed. And we might even say, I continue to go to church, therefore, because I'm a churchy person, I'm therefore a Christian, I'm trusting in Christ and not in something else. That is trusting in religion or heritage. They place their trust in being descendants of Abraham. This passage brings that out again when it points to them saying, are you, Jesus, greater than our father, Abraham? But as we look at other scriptures, we see that many of these Jewish leaders in particular, their idol was their own personal self-righteousness. We see that in Luke chapter 18 in Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who go up to the temple to pray. And it says this, the Pharisee goes up and prays and he's standing by himself he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And I'm sure he went on and on and on about all the wonderful things he did for God. And he thought that in that he would find life, that he would find that he had a relationship with God because of his personal righteousness. Because he was a religious person. He was a good person. He did the right things. And he was in the top 10% of people, much better than the rest of us. But they used this not only as a sense of justification before God, but as a sense of fulfillment as they would get the adulation of the people. And Jesus exposes this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, he says, 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Next verse. When you give to the needy, don't sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. They do this that they might be praised by others. Matthew 6, 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. That was their fulfillment. The adulation of other people based on their personal self-righteousness. But it's empty. But it isn't just religious people who trust in something else. We all trust in something else. Harold Abraham trusted in his running ability. That is where he was going to find his fulfillment, his success in his endeavor. And a lot of people turn to their success in whatever endeavors they are pursuing. And they feel, if I can get to the top, if I can, if I can accomplish what I want to accomplish, then I will find satisfaction and fulfillment in life. Tim Keller likes to point out that the, uh, the different idols that cities have, and he points to Philadelphia and says, that's, their idol is family, if they're from the right family. And he points to New York and he says, it's really the stock market, it's the financial end. Are you a financial success? And he points to Boston, and uh, anybody want to take a guess what he says? The Sox. Yes, the sports team, the championships we all win. Uh, truly, some of us do. Uh, but it's the intellect, the schools we go to, and what we often put our kids through in order to get to the right school. We, some of us are fulfilled by consumerism. It, it used to be the bumper sticker, whoever has the most toys wins. Of course, I would win that, but... Uh, hopefully not find my significance in that. Whatever I, we possess, that's what moves us. And the question becomes, what, what are we trusting in? What is it that we become anxious over or despondent if we don't get it? Or we fear that we might lose? Those questions help uncover what we're really trusting for life. Jesus offers himself. They refuse him. Jesus exposes the fallacy of their trust in Abraham. Saying, your, your father really isn't Abraham. Physically, maybe. But really, the one who drives you, the one whom you follow, is Satan. Now, it's hard to entertain that thought. And most of us would immediately say, just like they do, no, no, no. That doesn't control our lives. They are unwilling to consider what Jesus has just exposed. And their response is to, to put into effect defense mechanisms. And Travis brought out the first defense mechanism last week, denial. When Jesus said, I'll set you free, they immediately deny that they're enslaved to anything. And they say, we're descendants of Abraham. 
We're not slaves to anything. We've never been slaves to anything. And yet their denial is so easy to see through. As Travis pointed out, there was, they were under the power of nation after nation. Assyria, Egypt, the, uh, the Chaldeans, the Syrians. It was, there was a wave. They were currently under the authority of Rome, but somehow they were able to insulate themselves from seeing that about themselves, and they lived in denial. It's amazing what we can deny that everybody else sees. Their second tactic was to attack him. We see it in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Samaritan is a curse word in, in Judaism. For they were seen as, uh, they were the most hated. They were the greatest enemies and the disenfranchised. You, you wouldn't accept that word about Samaritans. And so it was a tremendous slander to say that you're aligned with the Samaritans. But of course, he goes even, they go even further. You're the one who has the devil. You are demon-possessed. It's hard to top that defense. But that's the extreme to which they'll go to kind of put their hands over their eyes so they don't see what Jesus sees. And then they misrepresent what Jesus says. Verse 51. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. You have life in me. And then they intentionally take his words as though he's speaking about physical life, when in reality, it's obvious he's speaking about spiritual life. But they twist it and they attack him. Verse 52 and 53. At this they exclaimed, Now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and all the prophets died. Who do you think you are? So they, they take and twist his words so they can use it to attack him. They misrepresent them. They're not open to the real truth of them. Uh, we see that today across our political spectrum. But we also see it often in the, the books that the atheists write. That they will twist what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Never having an open mind to understand what he really means by the words he speaks. What he's really accomplishing in his acts. Philosopher Aldous Huxley said, No philosophy is completely disinterested. The pure love of truth is always mingled to some extent with need to justify a given form of personal or social behavior. What's he said there? He says, He admits philosophers are not objective about truth. Nobody is objective about truth. We all live in this of a sense of what we think is going to bring happiness in life. And we look through those eyes and we will take and we will twist 
what we see to fit what we want to be able to do and how we want to be able to live. That's a defense mechanism, and it twists Jesus' words. And we need to, to ask ourselves as we read Scripture, do we use it as a mirror to really see what Jesus Christ sees about us? You know, James 1 talks about Scripture being like a mirror. Now, imagine uh, I come in from working outside, and my, my face is dirty and, and Karen says, your, your face is dirty. And I said, no, no, it isn't. And I said, well, go look in the mirror. So I, I go in and I, I look in the mirror and I, I become enamored of how beautiful the mirror is. You know, how intricate the art is around that mirror. And she says, well, don't look at the mirror. Your face is dirty. And so as I, I look in the mirror, I look beyond myself, and I, and I look and see Karen's image in the background, and I see a smudge on her forehead. And I say, you know, uh, the real, wait, you have the dirty face. And she'll say, no, well, maybe so, but you look at yourself. And I'll look and I'll say, oh, my hair is perfectly coiffed, and there's no dirt on my clothes. So... Who cares about my face? Do we approach the word of God in that way? Do we sometimes just look at how the treasure that the word of God is and we will proclaim the power of the word of God, the wonder of the beauty of the word of God instead of letting it speak into our lives? Do we read a passage and immediately think about somebody else who needs to read this? Or when I do read it and, and I see, hey, I really follow Jesus and what he's saying here and here and here. So it's really inconsequential that I'm not quite following him here. How do we respond when Jesus exposes us or this morning exposes an idol? Are we open to the very message because we, we trust, most of us here trust in Christ for salvation. And that justifies us before God. But what are we really pursuing to find life and fulfillment? Are we open to that question? Or will we deny, twist what Jesus says? The religious leaders ended that section by asking the question, who do you think you are? And that's the question we need to ask this morning. We're saying that we should follow Jesus. We should put our trust in him. The question is, who does he think he is? Is he worthy of our trust? And Jesus answers that in three ways. He says, Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your Father, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Who is Jesus? Jesus is saying, I am the one upon whom God has set his seal of approval. I am the one the Father glorifies. 
I don't glorify myself. In fact, I don't seek glory, he says earlier in the passage. I don't seek glory, but the Father wants me to be glorified. And he puts his glory on me. And he lifts me up and he honors me and glorifies me. But you don't know the Father. You would see that glory if you knew him. And so the Father is continually glorifying Jesus. At, at his very birth, magi come from a foreign land traveling months to present gifts to this child and to worship him. Jesus performs miracle after miracle after miracle, so many that people in the crowd say, we couldn't expect any more miracles from a Messiah than we've already seen. John the Baptist, the one appointed to point at the Messiah. At the baptism of Jesus, he points right at the Messiah. There he is. He is the Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at that baptism, the voice of God is heard. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Words we hear again at the Mount of Transfiguration. And the ultimate glory will be on the cross where what Jesus accomplishes fulfills the entire plan of God. It meets the fall with forgiveness and ultimate transformation. And when he resurrects in glory and ascends in glory, the Father put his seal of approval. We can have all sorts of debates among us. Who's the best prophet? Whom should we follow? God has spoken. He glorified Jesus. And he continued, verse 55, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. So they put their trust in Abraham. Abraham put his trust in Christ. Where do we see that? I believe Paul brings it out in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to the offspring's plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, singular, who is Jesus. And so what he's saying is, you may be the chosen people. You are a blessing to the world, but that ultimate blessing comes through one person, and that's me. Abraham's glory comes through the Christ. Simeon, the prophet at Jesus' birth, declares as he sees the Christ, Jesus, he is a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel is in Jesus Christ. Those people who are rejecting him and will seek his life are pushing aside and canceling out their very glory. 
And so, so they fire back at him. And they say, um, you're not even 50 years old. So how can you say that you've seen Abraham? How can you know what Abraham really is thinking and looking to when you weren't there, you're not even 50 years old. And Jesus gives his ultimate proclamation. Verily, truly, very truly I say to you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. That is a declaration that he is Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. D.A. Carson brings out how numerous times in Isaiah, Yahweh refers to himself as the I Am. The Septuagint translates the same words, ego me. And of course it points back to the name of God that God shared with Moses when Moses would say, you're sending me to my people, but... What's your name? Who, I'm going to tell them what God sent me, but they're going to want to know your name. And he said, I am that I am. Now, there are some who would see themselves as a part of Christendom who do not accept the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. And they say, no, there's just one God, and we believe that, but there's only one person in God. And Jesus is, is, is not It's interesting that we can sit here 2,000 years after the event in an entirely different culture from Jesus and make that declaration as though we know what Jesus is saying. But let's look at the response of those who were right of Jesus' culture, who were right there at the moment, who knew Scripture backwards and forward. What's their response to Jesus' statement? They picked up stones to stone him. Why? They hadn't picked up stones earlier, but now they pick up stones because of the blasphemy that he has just called himself Yahweh. Now, if that happened to me, I would immediately say, wait, wait a second, you totally misunderstood me. I would never want anyone to think that I've, I'm equating myself with God or I'm calling myself with God. That would be blasphemy. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. Jesus doesn't say that. He escapes because they rightly interpreted his words. So if Jesus is the one on whom God has put his seal, the one who is the fulfillment of God's one of God's greatest promises. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises. And he is God himself. Should we not put our trust in him for our lives? You know, Chariots of Fire also tells the story of another runner. Another runner from the United Kingdom. He was a Scottish Christian. But he didn't, he didn't run to find personal justification, to find life fulfillment. He put his trust in Christ. And so this is what he says about his running. 
God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's freedom. Abraham was tied up. He was emotional. His life would be destroyed if he didn't win. But Eric Liddell, he ran and he found the pleasure of God because he used God's gift that was given to him. And he enjoyed it to the fullest. He was so free that when he discovered that the 100-meter trial, his best chance for a gold medal, in fact, his only chance at that point for the gold medal, a race in which he had defeated Abraham before, when he discovered that was on Sunday, he withdrew his name from the race because he felt he would honor God by honoring the Sabbath. He disappointed and angered an entire nation that was wrapped up in him getting a medal. But he was free because he simply served God to please him. And this is what he wrote. Many of us are missing something in life because we are after the second best. I put before you what I have found to be the best, one who is worthy of all our devotion, Jesus Christ. He is the Savior for the young and the old. Lord, here I am. May we all be able to say the same thing. Father, thank you for your word, which is living and active. Thank you how it points us to Jesus Christ. May we find life and freedom in him. In Jesus' name, amen.